I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Ravenous. <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. And I am one of your hosts, and I am Andras Jones. And I'm also a host, and I'm Brian Connolly. And if we sound hungry and bearded, it's because we're <laughs> talking about the film Ravenous. <laughs> our, uh, the final, yeah. I, this is, I think, the final film of our uh, month of, of wrongness that we call Wrongtober. It's a film. Now, would you say that this film is a film that is a horror film that is not a horror film? Or is that it? Would you think of it as a film that most people don't think of as a horror film that actually is? You know, I have no idea. Like, this movie is, and we'll get into it, the tone of this movie is all over the place. Like, on the surface, it certainly sounds like a horror film, like when you read about it, like the plot. And when you watch it, there are parts that are in the vein of a horror film, but it's also really funny and it's really weird and it's not like other horror films. It doesn't really work like other horror films. So I don't know. I think it just kind of is in that area, just like with the other things that we've talked about in this month. It's like, it's just kind of floating around. There's a reason maybe why this movie is difficult for some to enjoy because it doesn't so firmly plant itself in the horror genre. Well, I I enjoyed the heck out of it. <laughs> I, uh, it I, I enjoyed it. This is the second time I've enjoyed it. I, I actually had seen it before and really liked it and then kind of forgotten what it was. And then when you recommended the film, the film I remembered was the film from the poster <laughs> and so I got, I really had that, uh, I, I don't mean this in an insensitive way. I have people in my family who have had this. I, I had that Alzheimer's moment where I got to totally forget something and then experience it again like it was totally new. Yeah. And it that might make you say that a film like this that, uh, it is a cannibal film that doesn't really stick to the ribs, but that is not <laughs> the case. This is a really really special film so let's uh let's play a clip from this film and then you can break it down for us brian there might be spoilers there might be spoilers there might be spoilers we took shelter in a cave decided to wait until the storm had passed storm did not pass. The trail soon became impossible. And we had run out of food. We ate the oxen. All the horses. Even my own dog. And that lasted us about a month. After that, we turned to our belts, shoes, any roots we could dig up, but you know, there's no real nourishment in those. 
we remain famished. The day that Jones died, I was out collecting wood. He had expired from malnourishment. And when I returned, the others were cooking his legs for dinner. Oh. Would I have stopped it had I been there? I don't know. But I must say, when I stepped inside that cave, smell of meat cooking. I thank the Lord. I thank the Lord. And then things get out of hand. Oh man, this movie is so good. And, yeah. yeah, and you're right about the poster. Like, the, I hadn't watched this movie in a because the poster just made it look kind of like a humorless. Like, it just kind of seemed like, oh, this is going to be some horror movie about cannibals or whatever. Uh, it's about the addicted. Like, I don't need that. Like, I don't want to watch that. But they don't bother to tell you that it's really funny, and the actors are brilliant. <laughs> so let's talk about the plot here. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do a simple version of the plot. Um, <clears throat> Captain John Boyd, played by Guy Pierce, and this is all taking place uh, in the 1800s. It's kind of the age of like Custer. Um, do they actually say the year? I don't remember if they actually say exactly what year it is. Like in my mind, it's like 1850 something, 1860 something, maybe earlier. Yeah, than I, that. If, like, I I uh, feel like it's got to be post Civil War. Post Civil War, somewhere kind of the so middle. It's of more the like 19. I'm thinking 1870, yeah. 1860, like 18 late 1860s. Yeah. yeah, around then. So Captain John Boyd, played by Guy Pierce, he was in war. He was in battle in America, but he has been labeled as Yella, as a coward, because he didn't run in the battle. Instead, he chose to hide under a pile of dead bodies. And just kind of lay there and wait it out. That's that's probably what I would have done. So, <laughs> but he's basically then kicked out. Not really kicked out. He's not really discharged. But they send him west, as far west as they can go, to be like, okay, we're not going to discharge you, but you can go to this fort that's way, way, way over there, and just kind of be out of our. Like, just get out of our way. Just you can just do stuff over there. So he travels to this little fort, full. Of a bunch of oddballs, you have David Arquette, you have a Jer- Jeremy Davies, Jeffrey Jones, um, Neil Mc- McDonough, is that how you say his name? That actor yeah. with the amazing hair. And, and those, well, those crazy eyes. <laughs> and Sheila Towsey, or yep. Tusi, who you'll remember from Thunderheart. Yes. I was so excited to see her in the film. And so they're, they, they all kind of feel like people that have been sent out there. <laughs> They're just an odd bunch. And they just kind of sit around in the snow in this fort and just kind of waiting for something to happen. They maybe are like the post where people will stop off at on journeys that they need to get some supplies or whatever. But who shows up? A, a, a FW, how do you say it? Kalk, 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 Kalkoon? I'm going to say it wrong every time. 
Played by Robert Carlyle. <laughs> he shows up. Just say Calhoun. Cal- Calhoun. Calhoun. <laughs> yeah, uh, Calhoun. He shows up all wild-eyed, looks like a crazy mountain man, and has this story that he was part of a party on through the woods. They kind of got stranded in the snow and had to eat each other, basically. And he tells a story that like the guy in charge went crazy and started eating everyone, and he escaped. But there's still some survivors left, and he, they all, all these soldiers need to come out and save like the remaining like women and children, and they're like, let's do it, dot dot dot. We won't go into it right now because maybe we don't need to spoil all this movie, but there's a lot of people eating people <laughs> that happens in this movie. People who eat people, people are the hungriest kind of people in the world. <laughs> um, uh, but. Yeah. And so, okay, you're just going to say, well, that sounds like a horror movie, Brian. But just wait. It's not quite because it has this weird sense of humor to it. It has this weird quirkiness to it. It has a strange soundtrack that's not the type of soundtrack that you would normally associate with a movie of this. And it just, it's basically all these great actors having a great time but being very good in it. And it's a very smart script written by Ted Griffin, who this was his first script ever made. And right after this, he was on a roll. He did the Ocean's Eleven remake, which is great. Matchstick Man, which is great. He did Rumor Has It, uh, wrote episodes of The Shield. Um, Like he's had quite a little career. And this is a very funny, very strange movie. It has an interesting little history that we'll talk about. Uh, But yeah. It's, that's the plot, though, of the movie. There's some great twists and turns. Yeah. It's, uh, well, you you know me. I guess this must not be much of a horror film because <laughs> I really liked it. But there are parts that I find kind of unsettling. There's a part oh, yeah. in a cave There's... that's very unsettling, upsetting. They're, they're, Honestly, they're, they're... just the opening scenes where they're eating steak <laughs> in front of this, uh, in front of Guy Pierce. Like yeah. that's one of the things that this movie does. Well, well, I won't get. Well, I'll just finish my thought and then we'll we'll get to talking about how the world is wrong about this film. But one of the things that this movie does is it's it's called ravenous, but it could also just be called nauseous because it does this <laughs> like the way it shows people eating like the eating of food that humans eat is portrayed to me more disgustingly than the eating of humans in this movie which is uh just sort of the theme of how disgusting eating is is sort of runs through all of this and yeah the most unsettling images for me are watching the people eat <laughs> that human raw, food not gross human food. yeah <laughs> yeah in front of this guy who's got ptsd from yeah. surviving uh you know a, a battle that he you know survived only by being a quote coward yeah <clears throat> and um this movie is really gory like it is it doesn't hold back on the blood and guts like it goes for it um Although yeah. I got to say again because I know how squeamish I can be like I find this film less gory than Casino. <laughs> but I think that I don't yeah I don't know but it's like usually I'm kind of squeamish for that stuff too but here it doesn't 
Yeah, it doesn't bother me. It's certainly there's parts where I'm like, oh, oh no. Yeah, but I'm not. But I'm not yeah. like fainting or running away or screaming or I'm not afterwards disturbed by this movie. I'm more just afterwards being like, what a great movie. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So how is the world wrong about this film, Brian? Well, this was a movie that I feel when it came out, it no one really saw it, no one really liked it. It was considered a failure because it didn't make its movie back. And if anyone had heard it's any... money back, you mean? What? You said it, it, it didn't make its movie back. It oh. didn't make its money back. <laughs> didn't make its money back. Uh, didn't make its movie money back. And I think that if anyone heard anything about it, it was just kind of more about sort of the behind the scenes mess that was kind of in the making of with this, which was sort of in entertainment news a little bit back then. Not a lot, but it's a movie that I think definitely was marketed incorrectly as well. And it just kind of came and went. And this director, sadly, kind of came and went, even though she's great. And yeah, and I think it's time to like dust this one off and be like, this is a great movie to watch in Rocktober, in Halloween, whatever you want to do. Like, this is just a fun. I think this movie is really fun. Did you say Rocktober? Wrongtober. Wrongtober. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) So, Yeah. I, that's why the world is wrong. I think that this movie has nobody talks about this movie. No one remembers this movie, even though it has great actors in it that we still like today. Um, this is the last film that the great actor John Spencer was in. This was the last movie he did before he passed away. So there's a lot, lot to love here, and it's time, yeah. time to love it. So I'm just looking at like I, I'm actually surprised at what a non-success it is. It had what is now, you'd say, a pretty modest budget for such an expansive film. It's a $12 million budget, but the film only made like $2 million at the box office. Weirdly, they released it in the spring of 1999, which this feels more like a winter Halloween, like a like is spring a good time to release a snowbound horror film? No. Right at the point when people are... <laughs> getting sick of the snow i don't think so also unfortunately i'm sure if we look at 1999 is such an amazing film year yeah you you got to think that probably spring of 1999 like the matrix and fight club come out or something (laughs) yeah uh uh so that didn't help no that didn't help can we talk about Antonio Bird for a little bit? Because yeah, well, let, let's for a second talk about kind of the brief history of how this, how she got into this movie, because I think it's important to kind of set her up. So this movie was originally going to be directed by I'm going to totally say his name wrong, Milcho Benchevsky. He directed Before the Rain, which was sort of a foreign film, as a hit in the mid '90s, '94, I think, and he then got to make this movie and they were filming it in Slovakia in the mountains of Slovakia. He kept getting studio interference. He was not getting along with the producers or whatever. They parted ways. (laughs) Then they brought in Raja Gosnell, who you may know as the director of home alone three was what he made right before this came out. And then the same year he directed Never Been Kissed. And then a year before he directed Big Mama's House and then went on to do the Scooby-Doo movies and Beverly Hills Chihuahua. 
<laughs> it did not work out. <laughs> the actors and him said it didn't click. It didn't work out. So then wow. Robert Carlyle said, I know who'd be great to direct this movie. I'm going to bring in my friend, Antonia Bird, whom I've worked with before. Multiple she's, times. She's the right person for this job. Brought her in. It worked out well. She still also had some problems, I guess, with the with the production. But May delivered a movie, delivered a very unique movie, delivered what I consider a great movie, a movie that could, should be added to that list of the best movies in 1999. A great year. So that's how she became involved, was through Robert Carlyle being like, okay, she's going to do this. Um, now t- you can kind of expand on her, because a lot of people are probably like, who? Who's this lady? I've never heard of this female filmmaker. Who is this person? Yeah, well, Antonio Bird, she's kind of... Her career runs sort of in parallel to Stephen Frears. She breaks into uh, to, to film doing gritty, issue-based British television in the 80s, sort of when Stephen Frears is really actually just starting to become a fi- go from TV to filmmaking. This is when Antonia Bird sort of shows up on the scene and she actually this is her third film with Robert Carlyle. He's kind of her Robert De Niro. Yeah, in her uh, first film, which is Priest from 1994, he plays the lover of the gay priest played by Linus Roach in a film that also features a pre-breakout Tom Wilkinson performance and uh, a, just a very earnest English film about what at the time was a more controversial Mm -hmm. topic. And have you seen this film? No, but I remember people being very upset by it when it came out. Uh, I remember it being sort of like, Oh, this, they they made this movie about this gay priest. Like, Oh, this is disgusting. Oh, this is, this is, you can't do that. And a lot of people complaining about it and being like, it was very controversial at the time. I want to say they even tried to make it rated NC-17 or something like crazy like that. I might be totally wrong it's, on that. But That's crazy because if you watch it now, it feels like a, like not even HBO worthy. Maybe it is. Maybe, not, I don't want to say HBO worthy in terms of quality, but in terms of that there's nothing edgy, particularly edgy to it. It seems like a very heartwarming story about a difficult time anyway it's a it's a you know it's a very uh it's a very first film from a really solid filmmaker just you know displaying what they can do with a small story and taking but not a big story but a small canvas and beginning this very fruitful a creative relationship with Robert Carlyle that's going to lead us to Ravenous and Robert Carlyle playing a very, like what you'd think of as, a, I would say, an, an un-Robert Carlyle kind of role. And um, yeah, just doing it. It's a, it's a great film. So then she follows that up with her, I guess her big Hollywood film, which I haven't seen, what you have, which is Mad Love. Mm-hmm. I think, Talk about it. I think it's a solid movie. That's uh, just, it's a Drew Barrymore sort of like drama. Um, she's very good in it. Uh, it's just an enjoyable movie. It's not, 
super special, but like it's just a solid, just pretty solid movie. Like it's now, like I've it, seen it, I liked it. A, it's like a Bonnie and Clyde type thing, right? Or like a gun crazy kind of thing. Is that the idea? It, kind of. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, so I don't remember all of it. But I remember it just being kind of like she's giving a really good performance, and this is sort Drew of like Drew Barrymore is Drew Barrymore Chris O'Donnell, not yeah. so much. Uh, I don't really like Chris O'Donnell, but <laughs> I find him kind of bland. But it's like, I don't know, just sort of, it's just, you know, it's it's just kind of a mid-90s sort of solid movie where it's like all the elements there are good. It's nothing very memorable, but it's like a well-made, well-acted movie. Like, it's got Joan Allen in it. Like, it has, like, real people in it being good. So... Do you think that Chris O'Donnell is sort of like the the Van Johnson of his time? Like, <laughs> there's a lot of boring stuff, but if like at the end of his career, the few really interesting things are the ones we're going to go back to, and it'll be like, you know, he actually was pretty good. Like, Man, you think he's more like the Van Johnson or more like the Martin Milner? I I think he's just there's he's just not. I just don't really connect with him. I don't. Well, you know, if you want, there's punks in the movie. <clears throat> and I wrote a punk review for this movie. Would you like me to read my punk review for this movie? <laughs> for, oh, yes, please do. So this is from. <laughs> this is Mad Love. From so, the t- from, tell, give us, it's from the book, which is. So this is in the second. This edition hasn't come out yet. This is a new review that I wrote like a few years ago. So we're still compiling. So Zach, my writing. Comp- so my writing companion, Zach Carlson and I, we wrote this book 11 years ago. There was a history, a complete history of punks in movies where we watched every movie with a punk in it. And then we um cataloged it wrote about it just obsessively just said here's every movie the punk whether it was you know ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains a movie about punk or whether it was a punk like crossing the street in the background of a Bette Midler movie it all counted so we're doing a new edition of it slowly and I got to watch and write about mad love <clears throat> so okay if you'll let me read do a little first. reading it's it's all yeah. it's only a paragraph okay Backwards hat-wearing Matt, Chris O'Donnell, falls for wild-girled Casey, Drew Barrymore, who ends up actually just being mentally ill. Takes place in the heart of Seattle being cool. Everyone wears flannel. All the teens hang out and drink coffee at a stand run by a guy who looks like the Hulkster. Casey asks Matt, So when it's not raining in this lousy town, what do you do with yourself? Matt says, Hang out. And hang out they do. He invites her to a seven-year bitch show. The band performs Scratch. Matt is impressed that Casey knows all the words. They jump up and down with other alternative trash bags. There's bleached haired dude there there's bleached haired dude, lady with a shaved head except for a strip in the front, fella with oversized t-shirt of alien and top hat and sunglasses, and various other kids with dyed hair. This is the only movie I can think of where the no rules pixie dream girl ends up being actually crazy. It's fun. When she dances wildly in her room, but not when she tapes thousands of eyes to the walls of your room to keep you safe. Matthew Lillard shows up in yet another movie in this book as a long-haired skater wise guy. Don't worry, he's not in here long. I enjoyed the part where O'Donnell watches Jack Horheimer's Star Hustler, 
an amazing PBS show where a very excited, casually dressed Rattan man told you about the week's astronomy happenings. That's my that's my uh, <laughs> explanation. Mad of Love, Mad Love, Mad in Love. 1995, <laughs> featuring but... my my former co-star, Drew Barrymore. And Chris O'Donnell, the man who got my job in that movie. <laughs> I actually live in the Northwest. Come on, Drew. Yeah, Chris O'Donnell, not believable as a Pacific Northwest guy. I'm barely believable as a Pacific <laughs> Northwest guy. Anyways, there. So, so that's sort of her big break into Hollywood. But the next one is actually, I think... Well, Ravenous is the best. I think Ravenous is... Like, by far the best. It's so good. But the one before it, Face, from 1997, another film with Robert Carlyle, this time with Robert Carlyle and Ray Winstone and Phil Davis. Do you know who Phil Davis is? He was in Quadrophenia. He was played one of the young punks in Quadrophenia, and he's in a lot of British television. He's one of those... Uh, British, I think of him kind of like the actor who played D-Day in Animal House. Oh, yeah. So he's like, he's iconic as this one young character, but most of his work has been as a much more sort of jowly old English guy. <laughs> tough, like one of those tough old English guy things. He feels okay. like he's been playing older for a while. <laughs> and so and it has, so it has a sort of sexy beast. If... It's sort of sexy beast Tarantino because it's 1997, but it's English and it's not doing it's it's much more grounded and interesting. But, it you know, it starts with these two raw, you know, these two thieves, Robert Carlyle and Ray Winstone going and doing something violent. So that sort of has that Pulp Fiction-y kind of hitmen feel to it. Mm-hmm. But so and because it's of that era, I guess maybe that's how it got made. But it's it's just a really great it's in this the the way that the Freer's stuff is really great. It's very grounded and de- the details are really great and the it, it's very it's a very like man film about men, but it's thoughtful about it in a way that you can tell is coming from and it kind of reminds me of Slapshot a film that was written by a woman that mm-hmm. is such a, a macho film, but it's macho in a, we- a way that is made by someone who is who really loves that and gets it. Maybe also like Point Break and Catherine Bigelow, the way that's a very macho film, but it's also the point of view has this thoughtfulness to it that, uh, well, that I, it, it sets up this next film, Ravenous. So then it's great that Robert Carlyle draws her into this I guess mess of a production but at the same time as you said this is the first screenplay from a writer who is going to go who's clearly something special so there's something special about this script and they're trying to find the right combination to make it to unlock it and make it work and what's this is where in where world is wronging it is that this is a case where they succeeded and yet commercially culturally they failed but i don't think you could make a better movie about this from this script i can't imagine a better version of this movie existing yeah can you no (laughs) 
it's yeah i mean and who knows like if they kept any of the stuff the other guy directed and maybe that's why the tone is weird but the tone is so strange and off kilter in the best way where it doesn't feel like a mess to me it doesn't feel like a hodgepodge of ideas it really feels like a very clear vision of this just very strange film <laughs> and like the movie start like the movie starts with this zany opening credit quote <laughs> with zany sound effects <laughs> and you're like wait what this is like immediately within the first second you're like this is not the movie that was advertised and then you go to this be- these beautiful shots. You go from the zany quote of being like, oh, is this like a Zucker Brothers movie? <laughs> is this Silence of the Hams? Like, what is this? And then you go to these beautiful shots and with these amazing actors. Like, with these ama- like Guy Pierce doesn't really say much at the beginning of this movie. Uh, but he has this great face, this damage. This guy's been through war. And... It, that doesn't match this zany opening. And then the movie kind of keeps unfolding like that. It just it has this amazing, it does this kind of amazing balancing act of like this, this grotesque imagery, this beautiful imagery, this weird humor. And she pulls it off beautifully. Like, I think she is a great filmmaker just based on this. And it's sad that this is her last movie. <laughs> This is the last thing she made that was a feature-length motion picture in movie theaters. Because didn't she do yeah. more TV after this? Yeah. It, it's it's one of those things where... Well, this is... <clears throat> so depending upon the prism that you view the world through... Well, I'll give you an example. I was speaking with uh, Jen Brown, who is a guest on our Noscars episode and uh, the co-host of Genre Graveyard... And I was telling her about this film and she was like, oh, yeah, I, I, I need to see that. And I told her the story of Antonia Bird. And she's like, well, yeah, that happens. That's 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 the way it is for women in the film business is, you know, you know, you doesn't matter if you succeed. It's just too difficult to survive in that world and you get to make a few and then it doesn't matter. Uh, and at, and I didn't want to discount that point of view which is why i'm sharing it here and at the same time it also made me think of how many of the filmmakers that we cover on this podcast are people who got to make about three or four films yeah whether it's tim robbins or steve shaneberg or to some degree phil Janua, who we're going to be getting into with state of grace he got to make a few more but in a way <laughs> i don't know he only got to make a few the way that Again, it's it's maybe it's a different class of problem than other directors, but it made me think about that three or four film window mm-hmm. that maybe is a, just the window that some directors get. To me, it's always weird that, like with uh, Steve Shaneberg, like Fur, an imaginary portrait of Dean Arbus, is the best version of the thing that he got successful for with secretary and then it doesn't succeed. And I feel like this is the same thing with Ra- like ravenous is maybe like Jennifer's body, a film that is just so good. And you know, yeah, maybe it, a snowbound horror shouldn't have been released in uh, the spring equinox of 1999. I think, it, I, I think too, like this is not, 
an easy movie to get into. Like it's if you're definitely like if you wanted the movie to be what the poster told you it was, you're not going to like this movie. And you're going to be thrown off by so many parts of it. Like the soundtrack to some people would be so strange that it would just probably ruin the movie for them. Like the soundtrack is by Damon Albarn from Blur and Gorillas and Michael Nyman. And it's a weird soundtrack. Like so good though. But it's amazing. So good. But it's not it's yeah. it's a de- I don't know who if it was if it was uh Bird who picked them to do the soundtrack or what, but like it's a very interesting choice because you would think something like this would have sort of like a more basic sort of like soundtrack of like, oh, they're running through the woods, the music is now gonna be like telling you that it's tense and oh here's this sweeping shot of the mountains and them on horses you're gonna have that kind of this sort of music but that instead you have something that's very modern that's very experimental and will sometimes slip into like banjo music or whatever but it even when it does like music that seems of the time it the tone of it is kind of contradictory of what's happening on screen in a very weird way like the part there's a part where jeremy davies is being chased and the music is kind of jaunty, even though his character is like maybe going to get killed. <laughs> but it's a very odd choice. All the music is very odd, but it's really beautiful and it works because this whole movie is sort of like trying to like kind of work against itself in a good way of like, we're going to have this tone, but in this scene that shouldn't have this tone. And we're going to have this kind of part seem funny, even though this part is disgusting. And I just love it. I just love, and I don't know if that's all on the page. That's all in the the script. Maybe it is, or maybe it's just that kind of beautiful thing of all these actors finding a director that can click with and just kind of making all these right, interesting decisions. Yeah, it's you know when an actor brings a director onto a film, that puts that actor at such a state of ease that they can they sort of become a kind of producer on the film right so robert carlyle brings her in it just makes me think that maybe there's something about that there's something about the wildness of the performances as you're talking i'm thinking instead of being marketed as a horror film this should have been marketed to the audience for jeremiah johnson <laughs> and mccabe and mrs miller <laughs> and you know, maybe I feel like this is the film that fearless vampire killers wanted to be. Yeah. You know, the, the Polanski, uh, you know, horror satire that I just never like, I haven't seen it in years, but when I saw it, I, I didn't really get it, but I feel like I was rewatching just the beginning of this movie today and thinking, Oh, this feels like the tone that that film is, telling us it's going to reach but it doesn't and it's a great thing too where the plot is crazy (laughs) and not real but you have these great actors in there just selling it and they're just selling this insane stuff that could be considered silly but because you have like the best actors of the time like this is guy pierce like at the height of him being amazing like this is between la confidential and memento you know like this is him being like the guy that we really liked in these kind of strange, interesting movies and Robert Carlyle kind of going off a train spotting with this and just Jeremy Davies sort of starting to be in like a bunch of movies being this weirdo. And it's just there 
doing brilliant performances here. Like, and I think no one talks about the, the performances in this movie when they talk about these actors. They talk about every other movie they make. <laughs> but when the movie just kind of, like the movie kind of yep. keeps getting turned up yep. a notch. I feel it keeps getting weirder and crazier. And when it gets to the last half hour, when it's basically like Guy Pierce versus Robert Carlyle, they're having a great time. I'm having a great time watching them <laughs> try like, to go at it with each other. It's just like, it's amazing. It's like two great actors just doing as good of a job as they do in anything else, but in this bizarre kind of genre horror yeah. comedy yeah. hybrid thing. Well, we mentioned Catherine Bigelow and Point Break. And there's a moment in this film where Guy Pierce jumps off of a cliff and it reminded me of Keanu Reeves <laughs> jumping a... out of the plane without his parachute. And it's like, what? There's something about like uh, <laughs> women making macho films in the 90s that the ultimate thing for a male hero to do is to literally jump to his death. <laughs> well, I also like how in this movie, like yeah. how beaten up everyone gets like how wrecked guy like he doesn't just fall off the cliff and then run away like arnold schwarzenegger will find like he falls through a bunch of trees rolls down a whole hill then gets trapped in a place like and kind of has to be there for a while because he really hurt himself badly and (laughs) yeah 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 that part's great yeah (laughs) and it's a good looking stunt too however they did it it really looks like somebody jumped off a cliff yeah every everything in this movie looks Again, it's kind of like I, I, budgets are weird to talk about, but $12 million seems very cheap for a movie that looks and feels this epic. That's like yeah. I, to shoot in the snow is not easy. And yeah, it's. Yeah, it looks like it. It is a great looking movie, like the locations in Slovakia that they had picked for the American West is our breathtaking is these beautiful shots of like, and it has this great sort of, uh, Doesn't feeling it feel of, Altman-esque? It, it does. Stuff. It does. It does feel Altman-esque. It has that kind of, well, because it has that ensemble thing going on where you have basically yeah, David eight, Arquette as the stoner. You have eight cowboy. people. You have eight people in one little area. So it has this kind of, that sort of Altman feeling of like, let's put eight people in this one place. But you, even though it's a period piece, you have people like David or kid acting sort of a little, like commenting a little more on like people of a modern age, but in this old West thing. And yeah, just like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, just sort of like, this isn't the kind of soundtrack you normally would hear in a Western. These aren't the type of people you'd normally see. Like, and is this even a Western or does it just take place in the West? Like it's not about cowboys and Indians like there's native American characters in here and they talk about like their beliefs and stuff, but it's not like that kind of movie and it's about cannibals, which is strange. And yeah, it's just like, it's, it's, it's a very unique tone. This movie. You think it would have done better if it had been called the hungry eight, the hungry eight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if Tarantino's a fan of this. Like it's, it's a Western in the way that the Hateful Eight's a Western. It's a bunch of weirdos yeah. in one place, just kind of. And then it kind of has a feeling of like the thing a little bit, too, of just sort of like you're surrounded by the snow. You're isolated. Who do you trust? Like, 
and the mythology they have with the cannibalism in this, where it's kind of like vampire lore a little bit that has that kind of like vampire peer pressure you see in movies like the lost boys with like, come on, do this. You'll be, you'll love it. <laughs> you know, it has that kind of thing, but with cannibals and just the whole, the whole thing that come up with like what happens when you eat people and what it does to you uh, is really, is really fun. Like the way they take it, but they stick to it and it works in the way certain people come back because of it. And it's just really great how they, it's a, it's a really smart script basically. Yeah. Yeah, um, the, the reveals, that's what I'm saying. It, I feel like if it had been marketed as a odd snowbound Western that also happened to have a cannibal subplot, I yeah. feel like it would, like the audience for this, if you're looking for a cannibal movie, you're probably not going to be satisfied <laughs> by this. And yeah. the audience that's really going to love this is movies that like uh, people like to see movies with great actors trudging through the snow in beautiful places and then getting beat to shit <laughs> and surviving. And in yeah. this case, they're getting beat to shit and surviving because they have, whether by choice or by, you know, just uh, happenstance, come in contact with human with the meat of the human the flesh of the human <laughs> body uh and uh like i just feel like the, like this could do from a little bit more of the wolf marketing like this is a character study of cannibals in the mountains rather than look at this scary movie with teeth and they're going to eat you. And it's like, that's not really what this movie, that's not the feeling you get from this movie. Like you don't yeah, get scared by this movie. Right? Yeah. They market it as a horror movie and they market it as like a horror in the movie. Spring. Goes, they in market the spring. it as a horror movie in the spring. And they wanted you to see it at the mall with like your friends. But really this should have been like, this should have been touted as like a prestige film. Like that's what it should right. it should have been like. Yeah. We're going to open this at Sundance and we're going to show this at festivals. And this is a movie that should be playing at the art house theater, not the multiplex. Cause if you, if you leaned more into like, here's this weird movie that yes, it's about cannibals, but also it has this built in kind of quirky. It's like, this is a midnight movie. This is a cult movie. And they should have done that from the get go. They shouldn't have done it as a opening against whatever giant movie <laughs> the week, you know, it's yeah. And then they, yeah, they advertised it as like this fun, crazy movie that you should see with your friends on a Friday night. And it's just not that it's too smart for that. It's, it's too well-made. Like this is kind of like an art film, but it's a funny movie. <laughs> and yeah, I think it just, they, they worked against it by thinking, I mean, I'm sure that's the studio's fault, whoever put it out to like try to think this was a movie that was going to open be an opening weekend hit or something when clearly it can never ever be that <laughs> this is not a movie for regular people to enjoy like people's parents are good unless they know what they're getting into and i think that's yeah i just the I, problem I think, is like you just can't yeah. sell it a certain way and then everyone's like who you're selling it to isn't gonna like it and the people who will like it you're not letting them know about it in the yeah. right way and I think I think it's actually the opposite. I feel like this is more of okay. When I say parents, like my mom would never watch a horror film. Uh, 
Well, if I'm in it and then begrudgingly. <laughs> and I'll never hear the end of it. But there are films like the people who would go like, why is this isn't any really any gorier than the uh, what's the one that uh, DiCaprio won the award for where he, where he fights a bear? Oh, similar title, The Revenant. OK, yes. So I don't like The Revenant is pretty brutal, has some really brutal stuff. I don't feel like the, I think the I feel like The Revenant is on almost every level, a more brutal and less pleasant film than this. This is a carnival compared to that film. And (laughs) I feel like the audience for both of those, if you marketed it right, the audience would be the same for both films. Like, I want to see great actors being brutalized by nature. Or what was that one, the Mammoth film with Alec Baldwin? Oh, The Edge? The Edge, same like that's like that one was we could do that one because that's one that the world is probably wrong about although i've I've seen it enough times on cable that it probably has some some great life on on cable tv so a lot probably a lot of people see it and love it but i feel like just even like the way that film was marketed Mm -hmm. is the way a film like this should be marketed now we're just getting into (laughs) sunday morning or what is it monday morning quarterbacking i don't know when do when does football (laughs) stop tuesday morning quarterbacking but uh but it is it it is something to put your mind around. Like if this film had Robert Carlyle and Guy Pierce on the poster in a way that made you like, oh, we're gonna see these two great actors go head to head in the wilderness. And by the way, they're trying to eat each other, which they're not. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, it kind of makes me think of that movie Bone Tomahawk that came out a few yeah. years ago. Like and that movie was marketed well and everyone loved it and they did the smart thing of just kind of slowly building world of word of mouth that this strange movie also about kind of like cannibals <laughs> old west starring weird you know actors you love like kurt russell and uh richard jenkins and just like but that movie like kind of built as a strange like what is that movie oh that seems interesting i want to watch that and i think they could have like maybe if ravenous had come out five years ago as opposed to 1999 maybe they would have been more smart about it and done it sort of like you play the genre festivals you really let people find this movie and start telling all their friends that they saw this crazy movie at midnight with these great actors doing these insane things because there's nothing bad about this movie yeah like this is a fantastic movie that it's it's wrong it's wrong that nobody's seen it it's 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 sad that it wasn't this kind of hit in the way that it should have been. Yeah. And like, who knows if it was what we could have gotten from Antonia bird. If this movie worked for everybody and it actually clicked, like what would she have followed up with? I don't know. uh, That's what I'm saying is like, if you want to go back, like I really encourage people not only to watch this film, but particularly to watch face. If the, the director who made that film, if, Everything that Catherine Bigelow has done in terms of making action films and maybe even action and issue oriented films. And I might even hope with a slightly different political compass uh, from Antonia Bird. But she has all those chops. You watch that film and you think you put this together with Ravenous and the follow up to this film should be. I don't know what it like should be like De Palma's Mission Impossible. Like she should like she should 
she's capable of that. And instead, she gets kind of relegated to, you know, goes back to the realm of TV and uh, made a couple of, well, she made one film, I guess, as a producer. She produced one other film, but she never really got to direct another film. And then she died in the, what was it, 2000, in 2013. So we will not get any more films from Antonia Bird. But it's a it's a it's a damn shame because this film is 1999, so that's 13 years, that 14 years of uh, you know someone who has got to be had to have been certainly was capable because as you said this film this not only is there nothing wrong with this film, there's a lot that is just just great and seems like a fantastic calling card for the ability to come into a mess as you as you said and make. A really quality film, and sure, it didn't make the money that it uh, it was. A, it was a, a failure financially, but it's just odd that a film like that that you and I can both recognize as being just excellent doesn't lead to her getting to make more films. And we're not even talking about in a time that's particularly unfriendly to female directors, like two thousand to now has been a, you know, has been a, a renaissance of female filmmakers. Certainly there's a long way to go, but it's it's not as if there haven't been all of these institutions and festivals and movement towards cultivating that. So it really is a mystery as to how Antonia Bird fell through the cracks to the point where I've never heard of her or thought of her until doing the research for this uh, for this podcast, and now, yeah, and now I feel robbed of something that uh, <laughs> you know that this is what happens when the world is wrong. We miss out on some good shit. But we're lucky that she was able to make this movie, and I'm happy that we're finally telling people about it. It's and like. It's crazy that like Ted I didn't realize Ted Griffin wrote this movie. Like I was a fan of his other movies and this movie was never brought up or really mentioned in anything that I ever read about Matchstick Man Ocean's 11. Like movies that are very smart scripts, very well written. This movie's no exception. And hopefully he's proud of this movie. Hopefully he is not sad. Like there's some people get soured when production is weird about their own movie. But like this is something you should be proud of. Like, just all the weird scenes of conversation, like, over, just, like, between people, like, over food, and just, like, in these weird moments, it's just, it's so good. Like, it's so funny. And I just, I, do, I just feel like there's the reason why all these good actors in his movies, they must have recognized how good the script was. Yeah. Like, I'm, like these these aren't people who just go and, at the time, wouldn't just do a, anything. Yeah, with a script like the, the the story sounds like something where it's a script that everyone knows is great, and then there's all these people vying for it. It's kind of amazing that it did turn out as good as it is, despite that it you know that it doesn't feel like it's a mess of of a production. the The tone doesn't shift. the the You know, it's it feels very the the through line is there, and yeah, that's uh. That's the magic of film, man. That is, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe uh, I want to find an analogy for, you know, how the 
the different directors cannibalized each other's work and each one grew stronger from the other. And then Antonia Bird came in and was able to fully take on the life force of these other two Slavic directors. Are they both Slavs? No, the other one is, I think he's just an American. Yeah. He's a, Raja Gosnell is, uh, yeah, he's just from from California or something like that. Well, um, yeah. Funny enough, that you mentioned the Altman thing. He was the editor on a bunch of Altman movies, um, but he didn't get to work on this movie. But maybe he was brought in because he recognized he he was assistant editor on Quintet and A Perfect Couple and Popeye and Help. Um, so, and while we're talking yeah. about uh, people who are associated with this. I also wanted to point out that Joseph Running Fox is in it. He plays one of uh, plays Sheila Tausi's character's brother uh, in the film, and he was in the film The Valley of the Gods that I sang the praises of in our Noscars episode. He's not the man who <laughs> fucks the mountain, uh, but he is the in that he's the older native man who basically fulfills the function of delivering the baby that is birthed from the, uh, the result of that man fucking that mountain in Valley of the Gods. Uh, (laughs) He also plays, he's also in the movie seems like old times bracketing this in that or in the early Chevy chase Goldie Hawn movie. I'm sure I, I'm, I think in that one, she plays the, the, one of the jokes in it that I hate in that movie is that, Goldie Hawn plays a do-gooder defense attorney and a lot of her clients play really awful, um, like just weird uh, racial stereotypes. And I think I remember which character he was and it's one of those. And then Chevy Chase is always making fun. Uh, yeah, it's it's unfortunately distasteful, <clears throat> but because uh, I, 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 I want to love that era of uh, Chevy Chase movies because I love like foul plays so much. Anyway, uh, I digress. My point is that Joseph Running Fox is an, uh, you know, has a, a, an illustrious career and he is also in this film and we should, we should mention that. Cool. Anyone else that's a standout? I mean, it's such a small cast, you know, it's, (laughs) I, I just, I just feel like if you like Guy Pearce, and why wouldn't you? Like, if you love his performance in, like, The Proposition or just anything, like, he just has such a great face in his, like, eyes. And so much of this movie, he doesn't really say a lot. It's a lot of him just kind of looking, kind of beaten up and kind of out past everybody else. And he's giving a really great performance. Like, I think one of his best. But sadly, it's just kind of nobody... Thinks about it in that way. Yeah, he's the Jeremiah Johnson role. He's so good. He's just so good. And I just love him. And I just loved this era, too, of uh, Jeremy Davies as, like, playing this sort of, like, in a band of weirdos, he's the weirdest. (laughs) And, like, just like he was in the Solaris remake and um, also in Secretary. But, like, he's... uh, He's just really good, always very good, and just sort of like having a great time. And I don't know. I just feel like I wish I honestly wish that this movie was longer. I just want it like I kind of feel like this would have made a great 
TV show. <laughs> you know? That is like, one of the things that's great about it. It this one this flies by. There's a lot it, in this movie. It comes it's like comes in at like a But it feels minutes. so short. Like it really feels like half a movie, not in the way that it's written or made, but it's like just the the, the pace of it. Like it's over ninety minutes, but it flies by and I kinda wanted to kind of hang out more. Like, wouldn't it be great if there was a show that was like this, like sort of like Deadwood, but about just eight people in the woods and there's cannibals. I'd watch that show. Like if <laughs> maybe someone needs to bring back ravenous and pitch it as a, as a, as like a TV show. Like in, you can have a whole world. <laughs> you have the cannibals in the woods. You can have these people at this fort. I don't know. I can see that working can make it in the era era of covid it's a small people amount of people like you can do go in the middle of woods and make a show with just eight people hey brian <laughs> you're a screenwriter you're a director <laughs> let's i'm an actor i'm a producer i don't know why there's like really nothing like when we're at this point when we say someone should do this if we're not willing to do it <laughs> who how can we expect anyone else to so let's get on it let ravenous make- the tv series Yes, you just need to now. We just need to find the what is what would what is the equivalent? Does it even exist? The equivalent of Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle in this film <laughs> cinematic environment that we're in? Did they like it? It's odd, but like I, I'm sure they exist and they're out there. And at the same time, where are the films that allow actors? to build up that kind of cinematic credibility from one real, like who's making LA confidential now who's making memento now, you know, I don't want to sound like an old, an old guy (laughs) saying, but just like budget wise, who's investing $12 million, even $12 million in making sort of what, what Steve Shaneberg was talking about when he was on, you know, who's investing the, just the, bare minimum money it makes to for people who are really good to go someplace and make a movie that you really want to watch where every shot as you said there's nothing bad about this film it that's the real horror here to end (laughs) wrongtober is the loss of the ability to make to invest to lose 12 million dollars on a movie like this because that's not lost yeah (laughs) Like, if you think of the $100 million movies that resulted in successful movies in the sense that they made $150 million, but aren't, but really don't stick to the ribs. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's... What's great is, like, okay, this movie failed. You can still see it. Like, that's yeah, the great thing it. about movies is that no matter how hard a movie tanks or how nobody sees it in the theater... You can still watch the movie. It's still it's not like the movie gets deleted from the earth. I mean, there's some movies I guess that have been you know hard to haven't been released or it's harder to find. But like when you have a movie like this with a bunch of famous people in it, uh, you might have to take a little bit of work to track it down. But it's there. It's not like locked in a vault that you can never find it. Like Ravenous, you'll be able to take take it out of its box and watch it and go, damn, that's great. <laughs> And you don't have to think about or even know about the history of it not doing well. Who cares about a movie that didn't make money, that has nothing to do with its quality? Um, 
And yeah, it is sad that like, yeah, this like millionaires need to just start throwing their money at just weird movies. Like if you have so much money and $12 million means nothing to you, just blow it on a take on a movie. That's going to be different. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why isn't Steven Spielberg producing movies like ravenous? That guy's got so much money. You don't need to be producing other prestige movies by other people. Like those movies will find money. You go to Hollywood and you find, you go to all the places and you say, okay, what are the scripts that have been around forever that everyone loves but nobody wants to make because they're too strange and won't make any money back? Here, I'm just going to throw $200 million at these five movies and we're just going to make them and at least there'll be five interesting, crazy movies in the world. So that's, that's my challenge to you millionaires out there listening to this. Well, you know, it's really the billionaires. I mean, it, it, the, the two things it makes me think of, because I think Spielberg is, is, an, is a weird example because he is such an industry unto himself that he does fund a lot of stuff, but he wouldn't fund a film like Ravenous because he is interested in making films that enrich the, you know, enrich the world that his children are going to inherit he's you know there's it's it's honorable but it's not like whereas like american zoetrope yeah is an example of a of a company that has that continued to invest in films that are kind of like ravenous or that are weird and odd and wonderful strange pieces (laughs) i you know I, i keep coming back to something that paul williams talks about in the interview that I did with him about the November men that's on the episode page for that on our uh, website at uh, www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com that it's something that the director Jean Renoir told him when he was a, a film student or when he was in college and he, and he got the opportunity to meet him. And he said that directors have basically three films in them. And in a sense, that is like you could look at it as a negative thing, like, you know, that Antonia Bird only got to make four films and it is a tragedy. And at the same time, there is kind of a maturation process that you get to see from the four films she got to make. And I think if we look at it, we might we may find that that is the arc for a lot of great directors because they don't get to the point of being a Spielberg or a Coppola, where basically you have so many choices that you get to make a lot of wrong ones. Mm -hmm. But when you're just becoming yourself, when you're when you're figuring out what your three or four films are, then you know, that's all gonna be exciting work. There's no, you know, there's no duds in there. Although I guess you say Mad Love is kind of a dud for you. (laughs) It's a strange, it's a strange movie. It doesn't really work. Um, but you know, you know, maybe in an alternate universe, <laughs> I worked with an Antonia Bird in that film. <laughs> it was actually much better, and we all had better careers. And you got to be we, in Ravenous. <laughs> I got to be in Ravenous. We we saw, and then Antonia Bird went on to have an amazing career. We had a much more enlightened uh, millennium. We solved global global warming, and there was never COVID. <laughs> this is a great story. <laughs> Missed out, people. Missed out. Missed out. 
You know what? You know the you know what the, the the moral of the story is I should have been more of a cannibal. I wasn't enough of a cannibal for <laughs> for Hollywood in the nineties. If I was willing to eat more of my peers. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. It's <laughs> Oh. Okay. Well, happy wrongtober. Brian. We did it. And I didn't eat too much candy corn. I ate enough, but not too much. And uh man, this this is a this is a good month. We like from wolf to this, we covered a lot of yeah. good we got a lot of good uh, things that I think movies that people don't know that they should see and love. And now they have these new favorite movies, hopefully. Yes. And like the characters in these in these in this movie with with human flesh, if you have watched all these movies, you have taken their power into you. <laughs> you now have the power of the wolf. You have the power of Don's plum. <laughs> no. You have the p- <laughs> and the power of ravenous. <laughs> uh yes, happy wrongtober everyone. <laughs> May it be a beautiful wrong vember. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. Hey, this is an ad. Don't fast forward. Be over in a second. Are you obsessed with a sports team, a band, or even collecting Chia Pets? Then listen to my new podcast, Rep Your Squad on Paperhouse Network, where I dive into what drives people crazy. So if you're a 40-year-old man with a stand collection or a middle-aged woman who loves the Spice Girls, that's cool. We don't judge here on Rep Your Squad with me, Chris Scopo. See? It's over. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Well, uh, I'm feeling hungry. How about you? <laughs> yeah, let's have some sloppy joes, some stew. I don't know what's in that stew, but it smells so good. Mm. <laughs> Imagine if you if like the if people came to trick or treat at your door and you just came out with this bowl of sloppy stew <laughs> and just and just hurled it into these bags. <laughs> what's the weirdest thing you ever got trick or treating? Or do, is there anything strange you got? I don't know. It's yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think I got I think I got chased by some kids in the neighborhood probably. <laughs> I remember I got there was a once. person uh, <laughs> There's a person that was giving out like little boxes of raisins, which I thought was really lame as a kid. I don't want raisins for Halloween. And then I remember someone giving up floss and toothbrushes to be like clever. Being like, here's floss and toothbrushes for all the candy, and it's just like I already have that. Like, just give me more candy. That is, I don't have that. <laughs> wow. You're so ungrateful. They give you <laughs> nice raisins and uh, dental hygiene equipment, and all you want is that deadly gross sugar. Mm. <laughs> hey, you know, when I was a kid, I would go wild for Halloween. I would get so much candy. I would, like, go home 
dump the bag out and then go back out and just keep hitting as many neighborhoods as possible. Um, but it's funny as a grown up now, I can just buy candy whenever I want and I don't do it as often <laughs> as I thought I would when I was, you know, 10. Well, <laughs> let's just, let's just be clear on this. It's not that when you were a kid, you used to go crazy about Halloween. You still go crazy about Halloween. You <laughs> devoted true. your That's early, true. your late teens and early twenties to creating all freaking night in Olympia. True, true. And yeah. now you refuse to watch anything but horror films in the month of Wrongtober. This is very true. And this is a tradition yeah. that my wife started. It was sort of at this come came out of Vulcan video. They called it Shocktober. And that's what we call it in our house. And uh yeah, it, at Vulcan, it was strict rules that if you were working in the month of Shocktober, you can only play in the store horror related things. And that was it. Like that was only the only thing it was allowed uh and then we've now continued that at home it's only 31 days of horror or horror adjacent because I, I i get scared easily and i'm not a huge horror movie <laughs> fan so i'll be like this abbott and costello movie counts sure so if <laughs> i was working at, if, if i was working at uh at vulcan could i show the believer or don's plum could i, could I, I show i don's feel plum? if you <laughs> no no <laughs> i think you i think it would have to really strongly play as a Halloween horror type thing. Also, like you'd have to, it still had to be like appropriate. <laughs> so we couldn't show, like if you worked at night, you could show an R-rated thing. But during the day, it would have well, to be there's uh, nothing... strictly PG-13 or under. You don't play the Language. sound. You don't play the sound, do you? Yeah, we did in the store. We would. Oh, yeah, really? We would have the sound up. Oh, yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's been many years of this. Uh, I really like it because it sort of gives me the chance to watch all the horror movies I've skipped over that I'm too nervous to watch, and so it's a good month to just be like, okay, let's just let's just take the bandage off, let's just do it. So, you know, you have you considered like just parsing, like setting up all of your viewing like that, like in February <laughs> you only watch rom coms. <laughs> I think in November after... you only watch assassination <laughs> thrillers. I think after this month I get pretty burnt out on following these rules, and then I just I want to just watch everything and anything. I don't like to have it be so. I mean, I already work on all these books and stuff, so I already have these year long. These are the things I must watch lists. So I think it's it's good to not have more than one month where it's so strict. I wonder if there's someone out there who does that though. <laughs> like in September, it's all high school. It's all high school films, all teen dramas yeah. that take place in high school. Back to school. I'm sure there is. But I can't watch Breakfast Club in October. But it is kind of a horror film. Breakfast Club is kind of a horror film. Could, could I play that yeah. in, in Vulcan video? No, you can play Weird Science. Like, I'll give you Weird Science, but that is about it. That's not as scary. Yeah, but there's like a monster in it. You know, it's got supernaturally stuff in it. There's a monster in The Breakfast Club. It's Emilio Estevez. <laughs> what he does to that kid is terrible. That story. <laughs> if it's ever if it's ever happened to you, you know that is terrifying. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, happy Wrongtober, everyone. Uh, I hope that yeah. you've you've enjoyed our month of wrongness. We're not going to get any less. We're not going to. It's our 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 podcast isn't going to get any less wrong in the coming months. But, uh, but there's a particular flavor to the wrongness of Wrongtober. So <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed that flavor. It's a little bit raisiny. 
perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're still going to continue with the uh, uncomfortable kind of horrors of humanity with our next episode. Yeah, we have a we have a our wrongtober spilled into wrongvember, <laughs> and uh, we're gonna next next week we're gonna be covering the film The Believer from 2001 starring Ryan Gosling as a Jewish Nazi and a film directed by Henry Bean and we uh, I had the good fortune to speak with Henry Bean on that episode and his take on the film is that it's a comedy so uh, not not only is it a horror (laughs) film that people don't think of as a horror film but it's not even a horror film it's actually a hilarious (laughs) rip-roaring comedy about a Jewish Nazi played by Ryan Gosling. And I'll be in- interested to hear his defense as to how it's a comedy because when I saw it I did not feel that way, but maybe I was wrong. No. You're part of the world, right? Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, well there you go. <laughs> um so uh well stick around. I I hope you stick around and 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 check that one out next week. All right, sorry, let me say it again. Well, I hope you you uh, stay tuned and, and check out that episode next week. In the meantime, if you've gone through all of the World is Wrong podcasts, you could also check out Brian's other podcast, The Director's Wall, where he and his co-host, A.J. Gonzalez, are currently going through the filmography of Francis Ford Coppola. And you can also check out my other podcast, Radio 8-Ball, where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting those randomly chosen songs as the answers to the questions, like picking musical tarot cards. And if you'd like to reach out to us to ask us any questions or give us any compliments or make comments on our dental hygiene, uh, you can reach out to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast you can find us on twitter at world is wrong pod and we're not on tiktok yet but i people keep telling us we should be on tiktok i'm like ah i can't take another platform it's it's too much but if someone out there wants to run it if someone out there loves doing tiktok and wants to Start a TikTok account for The World is Wrong. We would welcome you to the production team. What uh, would that be, though? Isn't it just like would be a video of you dancing for like 15 no, seconds? No, I think like it's I think, a no. sandwich. Or like, TCM what? has these. I think they would just show clips. I think we just showed the same clips, some of the clips, similar clips that we're showing on Instagram. Uh, but again, neither of us knows what? TikTok. <laughs> so we probably shouldn't talk about it or tick about it. Uh, <laughs> But uh, just throwing it out there, throwing it out there, because Brian, you know, we live in a we live in a, a a weird and troubled world, and luckily we have movies to brighten our days and our nights. But as we explore on this podcast all the time, the world isn't always right about these movies. In fact, wherever you are, the world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about you. I found your private Reich up there. All what was left of him. You didn't finish. Well, I can't blame you. He was tough. But then, uh, a good soldier ought to be.
You know, not that long ago, I couldn't do that. Could barely take a breath without coughing up a pint of blood. Tuberculosis. That along with uh, fierce headaches. Depression. Suicidal ambition. I was in pretty horrible shape. In fact, I was on my way to a sanatorium to convalesce, more likely to die. When en route, this Indian scout told me a curious story. A man eats the flesh of another. He steals his strength. He absorbs the other man's spirit. Well, I just had to try. Consequently, I ate the scout first, and you know he was absolutely right. I grew stronger. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne, to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.